The Autobiography of Goethe, Volume 1, by Johann von Goethe, translated by John Oxenford. Section O, Introduction by Thomas Carlyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Goethe, Volume 1, by Johann von Goethe, translated by John Oxenford. Section O, Introduction by Thomas Carlyle. Truth and Fiction Relating to My Life. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, translated by John Oxenford, Volume 1, Philadelphia and Chicago, J. H. Moore and Company. Introduction by Thomas Carlyle. It would appear that for inquirers into foreign literature, for all men anxious to see and understand the European world as it lies around them, a great problem is presented in this Goethe, a singular, highly significant phenomenon, and now also means, more or less complete, for ascertaining its significance. A man of wonderful, nay, unexampled reputation and intellectual influence among forty millions of reflective, serious and cultivated men, invites us to study him, and to determine for ourselves whether and how far such influence has been salutary, such reputation merited. That this call will one day be answered, that Goethe will be seen and judged of in his real character among us, appears certain enough. His name, long familiar everywhere, has now awakened the attention of critics in all European countries to his works. He is studied wherever true study exists, eagerly studied even in France. Nay, some considerable knowledge of his nature and spiritual importance seems already to prevail there. Footnote. Witness Le Tasse, Drame, Pas du Val, and the criticisms on it. See also the essays in The Globe, numbers 55-64-1826. For ourselves, meanwhile, in giving all due weight to so curious an exhibition of opinion, it is doubtless our part at the same time to beware that we do not give it too much. This universal sentiment of admiration is wonderful, is interesting enough, but it must not lead us astray. We English stand as yet without the sphere of it. Neither will we plunge blindly in but enter considerately, or, if we see good, keep aloof from it altogether. Fame, we may understand, is no sure test of merit, but only a probability of such. It is an accident, not a property of a man. Like light, it can give little or nothing, but at most may show what is given. Often it is but a false glare, dazzling the eyes of the vulgar, lending by casual extrinsic splendour 
the brightness and manifold glance of the diamond to pebbles of no value a man is in all cases simply the man of the same intrinsic worth and weakness whether his worth and weakness lie hidden in the depths of his own consciousness or be betrumpeted and be shouted from end to end of the habitable globe these are plain truths which no one should lose sight of though whether in love or in anger for praise or for condemnation most of us are too apt to forget them but least of all can it become the critic to follow a multitude to do evil even when that evil is excess of admiration on the contrary it would behoove him to lift up his voice how feeble soever how unheeded soever against the common delusion from which if he can save or help to save any mortal his endeavours will have been repaid with these things in some measure before us we must remind our readers of another influence at work in this affair and one acting as we think in the contrary direction that pitiful enough desire for originality which lurks and acts in all minds will rather we imagine lead the critic of foreign literature to adopt the negative than the affirmative with regard to goethe if a writer indeed feel that he is writing for england alone invisibly and inaudibly to the rest of the earth the temptations may be pretty equally balanced if he write for some small conclave which he mistakenly thinks the representative of england they may sway this way or that as it chances but writing in such isolated spirit is no longer possible traffic with its swift ships is uniting all nations into one europe at large is becoming more and more one public and in this public the voices for goethe compared with those against him are in the proportion as we reckon them both as to the number and value of perhaps a hundred to one we take in not germany alone but france and italy not the schlegels and schellings but the manzonis and the Stahls. the bias of originality therefore may lie to the side of censure and whoever among us shall step forward with such knowledge as our common critics have of goethe to enlighten the european public by contradiction in this matter displays a heroism which in estimating his other merits ought nowise to be forgotten our own view of the case coincides we confess in some degree with that of the majority we reckon that goethe's fame has to a considerable extent been deserved that his influence has been of high benefit to his own country nay more that it promises to be a benefit to us and to all other nations the essential grounds of this opinion which to explain minutely were a long indeed boundless task we may state without many words 
we find then in goethe an artist in the high and ancient meaning of that term in the meaning which it may have borne long ago among the masters of italian painting and the fathers of poetry in england we say that we trace in the creations of this man belonging in every sense to our own time some touches of that old divine spirit which had long passed away from among us nay which as has often been laboriously demonstrated was not to return to this world any more or perhaps we come nearer our meaning if we say that in goethe we discover by far the most striking instance in our time of a writer who is in strict speech what philosophy can call a man he is neither noble nor plebeian neither liberal nor servile nor infidel nor devotee but the best excellence of all these joined in pure union a clear and universal man goethe's poetry is no separate faculty no mental handicraft but the voice of the whole harmonious manhood nay it is the very harmony the living and life-giving harmony of that rich manhood which forms his poetry all good men may be called poets in act or in word all good poets are so in both but goethe besides appears to us as a person of that deep endowment and gifted vision of that experience also and sympathy in the ways of all men which qualify him to stand forth not only as the literary ornament but in many respects too as the teacher and exemplar of his age for to say nothing of his natural gifts he has cultivated himself and his art he has studied how to live and to write with a fidelity and unwearied earnestness of which there is no other living instance of which among british poets especially wordsworth alone offers any resemblance and this in our view is the result to our minds in these soft melodious imaginations of his there is embodied the wisdom which is proper to this time the beautiful the religious wisdom which may still with something of its old impressiveness speak to the whole soul still in these hard unbelieving utilitarian days reveal to us glimpses of the unseen but not unreal world that so the actual and the ideal may again meet together and clear knowledge be again wedded to religion in the life and business of men such is our conviction or persuasion with regard to the poetry of goethe could we demonstrate this opinion to be true could we even exhibit it with that degree of clearness and consistency which it has attained in our own thoughts goethe were on our part sufficiently recommended to the best attention of all thinking men but unhappily it is not a subject susceptible of demonstration the merits and characteristics of a poet are not to be set forth by logic 
but to be gathered by personal and as in this case it must be by deep and careful inspection of his works nay goethe's world is every way so different from ours it costs us such effort we have so much to remember and so much to forget before we can transfer ourselves in any measure into his peculiar point of vision that a right study of him for an englishman even of an ingenuous open inquisitive mind becomes unusually difficult for a fixed decided contemptuous englishman next to impossible to a reader of the first class helps may be given explanations will remove many a difficulty beauties that lay hidden may be made apparent and directions adapted to his actual position will at length guide him into the proper tract for such an inquiry all this however must be a work of progression and detail to do our part in it from time to time must rank among the best duties of an english foreign review meanwhile our present endeavour limits itself within far narrower bounds we cannot aim to make goethe known but only to prove that he is worthy of being known at most to point out as it were afar off the path by which some knowledge of him may be obtained a slight glance at his general literary character and procedure and one or two of his chief productions which throw light on these must for the present suffice a french diplomatic personage contemplating goethe's physiognomy is said to have observed voilà un homme qui a eu beaucoup de chagrin a truer version of the matter goethe himself seems to think would have been here is a man who has struggled toughly who has es sich recht sauer werden lassen goethe's life whether as a writer and thinker or as a living active man has indeed been a life of effort of earnest toilsome endeavour after all excellence accordingly his intellectual progress his spiritual and moral history as it may be gathered from his successive works furnishes with us no small portion of the pleasure and profit we derive from perusing them participating deeply in all the influences of his age he has from the first at every new epoch stood forth to elucidate the new circumstances of the time to offer the instruction the solace which that time required his literary life divides itself into two portions widely different in character the products of the first once so new and original have long either directly or through the thousand thousand imitations of them been familiar to us with the products of the second equally original and in our day far more precious we are yet little acquainted these two classes of works stand curiously related with each other 
at first view in strong contradiction yet in truth connected together by the strictest sequence for goethe has not only suffered and mourned in bitter agony under the spiritual perplexities of his time but he has also mastered these he is above them and has shown others how to rise above them at one time we found him in darkness and now he is in light he was once an unbeliever and now he is a believer and he believes moreover not by denying his unbelief but by following it out not by stopping short still less turning back in his inquiries but by resolutely prosecuting them this it appears to us is a case of singular interest and rarely exemplified if at all elsewhere in these our days how has this man to whom the world once offered nothing but blackness denial and despair attained to that better vision which now shows it to him not tolerable only but full of solemnity and loveliness how has the belief of a saint been united in this high and true mind with the clearness of a sceptic the devout spirit of a fenelon made to blend in soft harmony with the gaiety the sarcasm the shrewdness of a voltaire goethe's two earliest works are goethe's von berlichingen and the sorrows of werther the boundless influence and popularity they gained both at home and abroad is well known it was they that established almost at once his literary fame in his own country and even determined his subsequent private history for they brought him into contact with the duke of weimar in connection with whom the poet engaged in manifold duties political as well as literary has lived for fifty-four years their effects over europe at large were not less striking than in germany it would be difficult observes a writer on this subject to name two books which have exercised a deeper influence on the subsequent literature of europe than these two performances of a young author his first fruits the produce of his twenty-fourth year Walter appeared to seize the hearts of men in all quarters of the world and to utter for them the word which they had long been waiting to hear as usually happens too this same word once uttered was soon abundantly repeated spoken in all dialects and chaunted through all notes of the gamut till the sound of it had grown a weariness rather than a pleasure sceptical sentimentality view-hunting love friendship suicide and desperation became the staple of literary wear and though the epidemic after a long course of years subsided in germany it reappeared with various modifications in other countries and everywhere abundant traces of its good and bad effects are still to be discerned the fortune of berlichingen with the iron hand 
though less sudden, was by no means less exalted. In his own country, Goetz, though he now stands solitary and childless, became the parent of an innumerable progeny of chivalry plays, feudal delineations, and poetico-antiquarian performances, which, though long ago deceased, made noise enough in their day and generation, and with ourselves his influence has been perhaps still more remarkable. Sir Walter Scott's first literary enterprise was a translation of Goethe's von Berlichingen, and if genius could be communicated like instruction, we might call this work of Goethe's the prime cause of Marmion and the Lady of the Lake, with all that has followed from the same creative hand. Surely a grain of seed that has lighted on the right soil, for if not firmer and fairer, it has grown to be taller and broader than any other tree, and all the nations of the earth are still yearly gathering of its fruit. But overlooking these spiritual genealogies, which bring little certainty and little profit, it may be sufficient to observe of Berlichingen and Werther that they stand prominent among the causes, or at the very least among the signals, of a great change in modern literature. The former directed men's attention with a new force to the picturesque effects of the past, and the latter, for the first time, attempted the more accurate delineation of a class of feelings deeply important to modern minds, but for which our elder poetry offered no exponent, and perhaps could offer none, because they are feelings that arise from passion incapable of being converted into action, and belong chiefly to an age as indolent, cultivated, and unbelieving as our own. This, notwithstanding the dash of falsehood which may exist in Werther itself, and the boundless delirium of extravagance which it called forth in others, is a high praise which cannot justly be denied it. To the same dark wayward mood which in Werther pours itself forth in bitter wailings over human life, and in Berlichingen appears as a fond and sad looking back into the past, belong various other productions of Goethe's. For example, the Mitschuldigen, and the first idea of Faust, which, however, was not realised in actual composition till a calmer period of his history. Of this early, harsh, and crude, yet fervid and genial period, Werther may stand here as the representative, and viewed in its external and internal relation, will help to illustrate both the writer and the public he was writing for. At the present day, it will be difficult for us, satisfied, nay, sated to nausea, as we have been with the doctrines of sentimentality, to estimate the boundless interest which Werther must have excited when first given to the world. It was then new in all senses. It was wonderful, yet wished for, 
both in its own country and in every other. The literature of Germany had as yet but partially awakened from its long torpor. Deep learning, deep reflection have at no time been wanting there, but the creative spirit had for above a century been almost extinct. Of late, however, the Ramlers, Rabeners, Gellerts had attained to no inconsiderable polish of style. Klopstock's Messias had called forth the admiration, and perhaps still more, the pride of the country as a piece of art. A high enthusiasm was abroad. Lessing had roused the minds of men to a deeper and truer interest in literature, had even decidedly begun to introduce a heartier, warmer and more expressive style. The Germans were on the alert, in expectation, or at least in full readiness, for some far bolder impulse, waiting for the poet that might speak to them from the heart to the heart. It was in Goethe that such a poet was to be given them. Nay, the literature of other countries, placid, self-satisfied as they might seem, was in an equally expectant condition. Everywhere, as in Germany, there was polish and languor, external glitter and internal vacuity. It was not fire, but a picture of fire at which no soul could be warmed. Literature had sunk from its former vocation. It no longer held the mirror up to nature, no longer reflected in many-coloured expressive symbols the actual passions, the hopes, sorrows, joys of living men, but dwelt in a remote conventional world, in castles of Otranto, in epigoniads and leonidases among clear metallic heroes and white high stainless beauties in whom the drapery and elocution were nowise the least important qualities men thought it right that the heart should swell into magnanimity with caractacus and cato and melt into sorrow with many an eliza and adelaide but the heart was in no haste either to swell or to melt some pulses of heroical sentiment a few unnatural tears might with conscientious readers be actually squeezed forth on such occasions but they came only from the surface of the mind nay had the conscientious man considered the matter he would have found that they ought not to have come at all our only english poet of the period was goldsmith a pure clear genuine spirit had he been of depth or strength sufficient his vicar of wakefield remains the best of all modern idylls but it is and was nothing more and consider our leading writers consider the poetry of gray and the prose of johnson the first a laborious mosaic through the hard stiff lineaments of which little life or true grace could be expected to look real feeling and all freedom of expressing it a sacrifice to pomp to cold splendour 
for vigour we have a certain mouthing vehemence too elegant indeed to be tumid yet essentially foreign to the heart and seem to extend no deeper than the mere voice and gestures were it not for his letters which are full of warm exuberant power we might almost doubt whether gray was a man of genius nay was a living man at all and not rather some thousand times more cunningly devised poetical turning-loom than that of swift's philosophers in laputa johnson's prose is true indeed and sound and full of practical sense few men have seen more clearly into the motives the interests the whole walk and conversation of the living busy world as it lay before him but farther than this busy and to most of us rather prosaic world he seldom looked his instruction is for men of business and in regard to matters of business alone prudence is the highest virtue he can inculcate and for that finer portion of our nature that portion of it which belongs essentially to literature strictly so called where our highest feelings our best joys and keenest sorrows our doubt our love our religion reside he has no word to utter no remedy no counsel to give us in our straits at most if like poor boswell the patient is importunate will answer my dear sir endeavour to clear your mind of cant the turn which philosophical speculation had taken in the preceding age corresponded with this tendency and enhanced its narcotic influences or was indeed properly speaking the loot they had sprung from Locke himself a clear humble-minded patient reverent nay religious man had paved the way for banishing religion from the world mind by being modelled in men's imaginations into a shape a visibility and reasoned of as if it had been some composite divisible and reunitable substance some finer chemical salt or curious piece of logical joinery began to lose its immaterial mysterious divine though invisible character it was tacitly figured as something that might were our organs fine enough be seen yet who had ever seen it who could ever see it thus by degrees it passed into a doubt a relation some faint possibility and at last into a highly probable non-entity following locke's footsteps the french had discovered that as the stomach secretes kale so does the brain secrete thought and what then was religion what was poetry what was all high and heroic feeling chiefly a delusion often a false and pernicious one poetry indeed was still to be preserved because poetry was a useful thing men needed amusement and loved to amuse themselves with poetry the playhouse was a pretty lounge of an evening then there were so many precepts 
satirical, didactic, so much more impressive for the rhyme. To say nothing of your occasional verses, birthday odes, epithalamiums, epicediums, by which the dream of existence may be so highly sweetened and embellished. Nay, does not poetry, acting on the imaginations of men, excite them to daring purposes, sometimes, as in the case of Tyrtaeus, to fight better, in which wise may it not rank as a useful stimulant to man, along with opium and Scotch whisky, the manufacture of which is allowed by law? In heaven's name, then, let poetry be preserved. With religion, however, it fared somewhat worse. In the eyes of Voltaire and his disciples, religion was a superfluity, indeed a nuisance. Here it is true his followers have since found that he went too far, that religion, being a great sanction to civil morality, is of use for keeping society in order, at least to the lower classes who have not the feeling of honour in due force and therefore as a considerable help to the constable and the hangman ought decidedly to be kept up but such toleration is the fruit only of later days in those times there was no question but how to get rid of it root and branch the sooner the better a gleam of zeal nay we will call it however basely alloyed a glow of real enthusiasm and love of truth may have animated the minds of these men as they looked abroad on the pestilent jungle of superstition and hoped to clear the earth of it for ever. This little glow, so alloyed, so contaminated with pride and other poor or bad admixtures, was the last which thinking men were to experience in Europe for a time so it is always in regard to religious belief how degraded and defaced soever the delight of the destroyer and denier is no pure delight and must soon pass away with bold with skilful hand voltaire set his torch to the jungle it blazed aloft to heaven and the flame exhilarated and comforted the incendiaries but unhappily such comfort could not continue. Ere long, this flame, with its cheerful light and heat, was gone. The jungle, it is true, had been consumed, but with its entanglements, its shelter, and its spots of verdure also, and the black, chill, ashy swamp left in its stead seemed for a time a greater evil than the other. In such a state of painful obstruction, extending itself everywhere over Europe, and already master of Germany, lay the general mind when Goethe first appeared in literature. Whatever belonged to the finer nature of man had withered under the harmattan breath of doubt, or passed away in the conflagration of open infidelity and now where the tree of life once bloomed and brought fruit of goodlier savour there was only barrenness and desolation to such 
as could find sufficient interest in the day labour and day wages of earthly existence in the resources of the five bodily senses and of vanity the only mental sense which yet flourished which flourished indeed with gigantic vigour matters were still not so bad such men helped themselves forward as they will generally do and found the world if not an altogether proper sphere for every man disguise it as he may has a soul in him at least a tolerable enough place where by one item or another some comfort or show of comfort might from time to time be got up and these few years especially since they were so few be spent without much murdering but to men afflicted with the malady of thought some devoutness of temper was an inevitable heritage to such the noisy forum of the world could appear but an empty altogether insufficient concern and the whole scene of life had become hopeless enough unhappily such feelings are yet by no means so infrequent with ourselves that we need stop here to depict them that state of unbelief from which the germans do seem to be in some measure delivered still presses with incubus force on the greater part of europe and nation after nation each in its own way feels that the first of all moral problems is how to cast it off or how to rise above it governments naturally attempt the first expedient philosophers in general the second the poet says schiller is a citizen not only of his country but of his time whatever occupies and interests men in general will interest him still more that nameless unrest the blind struggle of a soul in bondage that high sad longing discontent which was agitating every bosom had driven goethe almost to despair all felt it he alone could give it voice and here lies the secret of his popularity in his deep susceptive heart he felt a thousand times more keenly what every one was feeling with the creative gift which belonged to him as a poet he bodied it forth into visible shape gave it a local habitation and a name and so made himself the spokesman of his generation werther is but the cry of that dim-rooted pain under which all thoughtful men of a certain age were languishing it paints the misery it passionately utters the complaint and heart and voice all over europe loudly and at once respond to it true it prescribes no remedy for that was a far different far harder enterprise to which other years and a higher culture were required but even this utterance of the pain even this little for the present is ardently grasped at and with eager sympathy appropriated in every bosom if byron's 
life-weariness, his moody melancholy and mad stormful indignation, borne on the tones of a wild and quite artless melody, could pierce so deep into many a British heart, now that the whole matter is no longer new, is indeed old and trite, we may judge with what vehement acceptance this Werther must have been welcomed, coming as it did, like a voice from unknown regions, the first thrilling peal of that impassioned dirge which in country after country men's ears have listened to till they were deaf to all else. For Werther, infusing itself into the core and whole spirit of literature, gave birth to a race of sentimentalists, who have raged and wailed in every part of the world till better light dawned on them, or at worst, exhausted nature laid herself to sleep, and it was discovered that lamenting was an unproductive labour. These funereal choristers, in Germany a loud, haggard, tumultuous, as well as tearful class, were named the Kraftmänner, or power men, but have all long since, like sick children, cried themselves to rest. Byron was our English sentimentalist and power man, the strongest of his kind in Europe, the wildest, the gloomiest, and, it may be hoped, the last. For what good is it to whine, put finger in the eye, and sob in such a case? still more to snarl and snap in malignant wise, like dog distract or monkey sick. Why shall we quarrel with our existence, here as it lies before us, our field and inheritance, to make or mar, for better or for worse, in which too so many noblest men have, even from the beginning, warring with the very evils we war with, both made and been, what will be venerated, to all time. A wide and every way most important interval divides Werther, with its sceptical philosophy and hypochondriacal crotchets, from Goethe's next novel, Wilhelm Meister's Apprenticeship, published some twenty years afterwards. This work belongs in all senses to the second and sounder period of Goethe's life, and may indeed serve as the fullest, if perhaps not the purest, impress of it, being written with due forethought at various times during a period of no less than ten years. Considered as a piece of art, there were much to be said on Meister, all which, however, lies beyond our present purpose. We are here looking at the work chiefly as a document for the writer's history and in this point of view it certainly seems, as contrasted with its more popular precursor, to deserve our best attention. For the problem which had been stated in Werther, with despair of its solution, is here solved. The lofty enthusiasm which, wandering wildly over the universe, found no resting place, has here reached its appointed home and lives in harmony with what long appeared to threaten it was annihilation. Anarchy has now become peace. The once gloomy and perturbed spirit is now serene, cheerfully vigorous, 
and rich in good fruits. Neither, which is most important of all, has this peace been attained by a surrender to necessity or any compact with delusion. A seeming blessing, such as years and dispiritment will of themselves bring to most men, and which is indeed no blessing, since even continued battle is better than destruction or captivity, and peace of this sort is like that of Galgacus's Romans, who called it peace when they had made a desert. Here the ardent, high-aspiring youth has grown into the calmest man, yet with increase, and not loss, of ardour, and with aspirations higher as well as clearer, for he has conquered his unbelief. The ideal has been built on the actual, no longer floats vaguely in darkness and regions of dreams, but rests in light on the firm ground of human interest and business, as in its true scene, on its true basis. It is wonderful to see with what softness the scepticism of Jano, the commercial spirit of Werner, the reposing polished manhood of Lothario and the uncle, and the unearthly enthusiasm of the harper, the gay animal vivacity of Philina, the mystic, ethereal, almost spiritual nature of Mignon, are blended together in this work, how justice is done to each, how each lives freely in his proper element, in his proper form, and how, as Wilhelm himself, the mild-hearted, all-hoping, all-believing Wilhelm, struggles forward towards his world of art through these curiously complected influences, all this unites itself into a multifarious, yet so harmonious whole, as into a clear poetic mirror, where man's life and business in this age, his passions and purposes, the highest equally with the lowest, are imaged back to us in beautiful significance. Poetry and prose are no longer at variance, for the poet's eyes are opened. He sees the changes of many-coloured existence, and sees the loveliness and deep purport which lies hidden under the very meanest of them, hidden to the vulgar sight, but clear to the poets, because the open secret is no longer a secret to him, and he knows that the universe is full of goodness, that whatever has been has beauty. Apart from its literary merits or demerits, such is the temper of mind we trace in Goethe's Meister, and more or less expressly exhibited in all his later works, we reckon it a rare phenomenon, this temper, and worthy in our times, if it do exist, of best study from all inquiring men. How has such a temper been attained in this so lofty and impetuous mind, once, too, dark, desolate, and full of doubt, more than any other. How may we, each of us in his several sphere, attain it, or strengthen it for ourselves? These are questions, this last is a question, 
in which no one is unconcerned to answer these questions to begin the answer of them would lead us very far beyond our present limits it is not as we believe without long sedulous study without learning much and unlearning much that for any man the answer of such questions is even to be hoped meanwhile as regards goethe there is one feature of the business which to us throws considerable light on his moral persuasions and will not in investigating the secret of them be overlooked we allude to the spirit in which he cultivates his art the noble disinterested almost religious love with which he looks on art in general and strives towards it as towards the sure highest nay only good for a man of goethe's talent to write many such pieces of rhetoric setting forth the dignity of poets and their innate independence on external circumstances could be no very hard task accordingly we find such sentiments again and again expressed sometimes with still more gracefulness still clearer emphasis in his various writings but to adopt these sentiments into his sober practical persuasion in any measure to feel and believe that such was still and must always be the high vocation of the poet on this ground of universal humanity of ancient and now almost forgotten nobleness to take his stand even in these trivial jeering withered unbelieving days and through all their complex dispiriting mean yet tumultuous influences to make his light shine before them that it might beautify even our rag-gathering age with some beams of that mild divine splendour which had long left us the very possibility of which was denied heartily and in earnest to meditate all this was no common proceeding to bring it into practice especially in such a life as his had been was among the highest and hardest enterprises which any man whatever could engage in we reckon this a greater novelty than all the novelties which as a mere writer he ever put forth whether for praise or censure we have taken it upon us to say that if such is in any sense the state of the case with regard to goethe he deserves not mere approval as a pleasing poet and sweet singer but deep grateful study observance imitation as a moralist and philosopher if there be any probability that such is the state of the case we cannot but reckon it a matter well worthy of being inquired into and it is for this only that we are here pleading and arguing meister is the mature product of the first genius of our times and must one would think be different in various respects from the immature products of geniuses who are far from the first and whose works spring from the brain in as many weeks as goethe's cost him years 
it may deserve to be mentioned here that meister at its first appearance in germany was received very much as it has been in england goethe's known character indeed precluded indifference there but otherwise it was much the same the whole guild of criticism was thrown into perplexity into sorrow everywhere was dissatisfaction open or concealed official duty impelling them to speak some said one thing some another all felt in secret that they knew not what to say till the appearance of schlegel's character no word that we have seen of the smallest chance to be decisive or indeed to last beyond the day had been uttered regarding it some regretted that the fire of werther was so wonderfully abated whisperings there might be about lowness heaviness some spake forth boldly in behalf of suffering virtue novalis was not among the speakers but he censured the work in secret and this for a reason which to us will seem the strangest for its being as we should say a benthamite work many are the bitter aphorisms we find among his fragments directed against meister for its prosaic mechanical economical cold-hearted altogether utilitarian character we english again call goethe a mystic so difficult it is to please all parties but the good deep noble novalis made the fairest amends for notwithstanding all this tieck tells us if we remember rightly he continually returned to meister and could not but peruse and re-peruse it goethe's wanderjahre was published in his seventy-second year werther in his twenty-fifth thus in passing between these two works and over meister's lehrjahre which stands nearly midway we have glanced over a space of almost fifty years including within them of course whatever was most important in his public or private history by means of these quotations so diverse in their tone we meant to make it visible that a great change had taken place in the moral disposition of the man a change from inward imprisonment doubt and discontent into freedom belief and clear activity such a change as in our opinion must take place more or less consciously in every character that especially in these times attains to spiritual manhood and in characters possessing any thoughtfulness and sensibility will seldom take place without a too painful consciousness without bitter conflicts in which the character itself is too often maimed and impoverished and which end too often not in victory but in defeat or fatal compromise with the enemy too often we may well say for though many gird on the harness few bear it warrior-like still fewer put it off with triumph among our own poets byron was almost the only man we saw faithfully and manfully struggling to the end in this cause and he died while the victory was still doubtful 
or at best only beginning to be gained we have already stated our opinion that goethe's success in this matter has been more complete than that of any other man in his age nay that in the strictest sense he may almost be called the only one that has so succeeded on this ground were it on no other we have ventured to say that his spiritual history and procedure must deserve attention that his opinions his creations his mode of thought his whole picture of the world as it dwells within him must to his contemporaries be an inquiry of no common interest of an interest altogether peculiar and not in this degree exampled in existing literature these things can be but imperfectly stated here and must be left not in a state of demonstration but at the utmost of loose fluctuating probability nevertheless if inquired into they will be found to have a precise enough meaning and as we believe a highly important one for the rest what sort of mind it is that has passed through this change that has gained this victory how rich and high a mind how learned by study in all that is wisest by experience in all that is most complex the brightest as well as the blackest in man's existence gifted with what insight with what grace and power of utterance we shall not for the present attempt discussing all these the reader will learn who studies his writings with such attention as they merit and by no other means of goethe's dramatic lyrical didactic poems in their thousandfold expressiveness for they are full of expressiveness we can here say nothing but in every department of literature of art ancient and modern in many provinces of science we shall often meet him and hope to have other occasions of estimating what in these respects we and all men owe him two circumstances meanwhile we have remarked which to us throw light on the nature of his original faculty for poetry and go far to convince us of the mastery he has attained in that art these we may here state briefly for the judgment of such as already know his writings or the help of such as are beginning to know them the first is his singularly emblematic intellect his perpetual never failing tendency to transform into shape into life the opinion the feeling that may dwell in him which in its widest sense we reckon to be essentially the grand problem of the poet we do not mean mere metaphor and rhetorical trope these are but the exterior concern often but the scaffolding of the edifice which is to be built up within our thoughts by means of them in allusions in similitudes though no one known to us is happier many are more copious than goethe but we find this faculty of his in the very essence of his intellect and trace it alike in the quiet cunning epigram the allegory the quaint device reminding us of some 
Quarles or Bunyan, and in the Fausts, the Tassos, the Mignons, which in their pure and genuine personality may almost remind us of the Ariels and Hamlets of Shakespeare. Everything has form, everything has visual existence. The poet's imagination bodies forth the forms of things unseen his pen turns them to shape this as a natural endowment exists in goethe we conceive to a very high degree the other characteristic of his mind which proves to us his acquired mastery in art as this shows us the extent of his original capacity for it is his wonderful variety nay universality his entire freedom from the mannerism we read goethe for years before we come to see wherein the distinguishing peculiarity of his understanding of his disposition even of his way of writing consists it seems quite a simple style that of his remarkable chiefly for its calmness its perspicuity in short its commonness and yet it is the most uncommon of all styles we feel as if every one might imitate it and yet it is inimitable as hard is it to discover in his writings though there also as in every man's writings the character of the writer must lie recorded what sort of spiritual construction he has what are his temper his affections his individual specialties for all lives freely within him Bellina and Cronchen, Mephistopheles and Mignon are alike indifferent or alike dear to him he is of no sect or caste he seems not this man or that man but a man we reckon this to be the characteristic of a master in art of any sort and true especially of all great poets how true is it of shakespeare and homer who knows or can figure what the man shakespeare was by the first by the twentieth perusal of his works he is a voice coming to us from the land of melody his old brick-dwelling place in the mere earthly burg of stratford-on-avon offers us the most inexplicable enigma and what is homer in the ilias he is the witness he has seen and he reveals it we hear and believe but we do not behold him now compare with these two poets any other two not of equal genius for there are none such but of equal sincerity who wrote as earnestly and from the heart like them take for instance jean paul and lord byron the good richter begins to show himself in his broad massive kindly quaint significance before we have read many pages of even his slightest work and to the last he paints himself much better than his subject byron may also be said to have painted nothing else but himself 
be his subject what it might yet as a test for the culture of a poet in his poetical capacity for his pretensions to mastery and completeness in his art we cannot but reckon this among the surest tried by this there is no writer that approaches within many degrees of goethe End of section double O.